Last, but certainly not least, we met with incumbent venture candidate 2019 Paul Cooper at his second office on University Avenue. He had a lot to say about everything. We learned that being at Convocation was the highlight of his illustrious career and spoke about what issues need to be tackled in the next four years. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us, Paul. Thank you. It's Sunday evening, and I'm sure you have other things to be doing, so it's nice to be sitting here. And I'm hoping to discuss a little bit about your campaign for the upcoming venture election and your experiences in the previous four years at Convocation and, and what you hope to bring as an incumbent. First of all, thank you for speaking to me. The last four years have been the best part of my career. It's interesting to be involved at Convocation. It is a mini parliament where you're there to advocate in the best interest of the public, the legal profession. You're there to help to ensure that the public is protected, but you're also there to ensure the policies are there that help support the profession because a well-educated, very competent profession with memberships that have access to resources that can help them through. Like, for example, the coach mentoring advisory is so important to ensure that the public gets a high level of service. And so over the last four years, I've had the honor of being at Convocation. It's been the best four years of my career. What you're hitting on is an important point, that acting in the public interest can actually be aligned with the members' interests. And I'd like to explore that a little bit more. Yeah, there's a difference between the we message and the I message. And so we're there to ensure that our membership as a whole provides excellent service to the public. We cannot protect individual members that go awry. You have to ensure that, you know, your obligation as a director, that you have that obligation as the profession and the public in mind at all times. How do we go about ensuring this competency? Do you think the current system is adequate or is there more we should be doing? You have to look at data. That's the first thing. You'll hear people come up with their view that the sky is falling. There's too many lawyers. Instead, they should look at the data because if we are graduating and we're calling to the bar competent people, that's all that counts. We're not here to regulate competition. That's not our role. Our role is to ensure that competencies are at a proper standard and that the public is protected to ensure that they have good quality service and that access to justice is satisfied, that we are able to provide routes so that people can obtain access to justice, obtain legal services. You asked about the last four years. There's been substantial change, and I've been a small fly in the wall trying to help with that change and it's been historical change. The smallest thing from the name change is so important. It brings it down to such an easy level for people to understand what the law society is and then the programs that have been uh, undertaken so that the public has confidence that they can approach lawyers, they know what their rights are, so that there is an even playing field. So when they come into a lawyer's office, they feel comfortable. There are so many hardworking people. I'm not going to take credit for it. I just got to vote on a number of things and been there at the right time. So the challenges report, which was at committee for so long, and there was resistance to it. And under the leadership of Paul Shabas as treasurer and people like Rajanand and Sandra Nishikawa and all the people on the equity 
committees, bringing it forward so that we could put it into play. And we're only starting to put it into play, right? That's why the statement of principles is so important. A moment ago, I mentioned how important it is for somebody on the public level to be able to come in to a lawyer's office and feel comfortable. Imagine if you're a person of diversity. How comfortable are you going to feel when you come in an office? What I say to all the members out there, that statement of principles, post it on your wall in in your reception. Let people know what you think and how you believe and how they can come into a safe environment, especially when they may be facing adversity and they're looking for help and they need help and they need a place that is safe so that people can truly take on their interests and help them. Those are a couple examples. And I can go on the mentorship, the coach advisory network. When we're talking about competency, it's not just lawyers, right? We have to consider paralegals as well. So what are your impressions on the regulation of paralegals thus far? Where do we go from here? The government has mandated that the law society is responsible for regulating two professions, the legal profession involving lawyers as well as the paralegals. Now, there is a difference between the two different groups, but we have to ensure that the public interest is served. So the competency of people and I'm talking about any person on the street that is looking for help, they have to be able to attend somebody's office and ensure that they have good quality, competent service. If it's a lawyer, we have put into play different programs to ensure that there are level of competencies. For paralegals, we also have to ensure that those resources are there. There is a difference between competency and scope of practice. Paralegals presently have a very wide scope of practice. My views are known that I do not believe that paralegals' scope of practice should enlarge. They have a very large area that they can practice and do serve the community and do serve the purpose of access to justice. But in the areas they're looking to move forward and expand on right now, for example, family law, the data is not in to show that the need is there, that they are able to satisfy, that they will be the answer to access to justice. It's being studied right now by the Law Society. And I would say we need to have the data to make an informed choice as to how to move forward. The family lawyers out there in the Family Lawyers Association are also looking at how to deal with the issue of so many unrepresented individuals uh, involved in family cases. The government's doing the same. The courts are doing the same. We have to allow them to examine it and then look at it from a proper, dispassionate way to say what is the best way to serve the community and serve the public. Another thing that's come up, we hear a lot about licensing fees and insurance. How do you see these as either facilitating practice or barriers to practice? And is there anything that we should look at changing in these regimes? In relation to our fees, our fees, if you compare it to other professional bodies, are pretty reasonable. We have our own insurance organization, LawPro. It is owned by the Law Society. It runs separately as an insurance company. So there's two different issues that I think you're talking about that I would like to answer. One has to deal with barriers to entry. And we have to think about ways to ensure that young lawyers or lawyers that have are really putting in hours for free and doing the pro bono work on the front lines, that they have some sort of discount available to them. If they're not grossing a certain amount of uh, billings, if they're under $100,000, we should consider some sort of discount for them. Right now, the way that it works for fees is you're either full-time 
or your part-time. It may be that there should be some minimum gross billing that should be hit prior to paying the full fee. And if you're a new lawyer, if you're a young lawyer, and it's hard to get a job, when I came out and I graduated, it was a terrible economy. There was a severe recession. I went four months without any work after having been called to the bar. And then I started doing some agency work. I was paying my fees. It was a struggle. And it took about eight months before I set up my own little office and I, and I started on my own. And it was hard. And I can only imagine how hard it is today. I didn't have to carry the debt that young lawyers have to carry today for going through law school. And I'm not that old, uh, but my last year of law school was $1,600. And I could make $8,000 in a summer. And I could pay for my law school. And I could pay for my books. And I could pay for my lodging. It's a different dynamic today. So for lawyers being called to the bar with $100,000 or $200,000 of debt, we have to be sensitive to that and maybe have incremental levels of cost of fees in order to help them, help young members get over the hump because they will be the future and they will be fine over time. As for insurance, there's a different issue that I want to talk about. And this really speaks to litigators, real estate lawyers, family lawyers, criminal lawyers. It speaks to the whole membership. Presently, our insurance that we cover has a maximum liability amount of $1 million and has been that amount for, it's got to be over 30 years. Law Pro makes a lot of money. Their statements are public. You can take a look at what their reserves are. They also have been reducing their fees because there's a tremendous surplus. What I'd like to do is I'd like to embark on trying to change the amount that we have of our liability coverage from a million to two, three, or $5 million, but with no cost increase to any single member. And here's how I think we can do it. We have that surplus, number one. Number two is we have the data that tells us that notwithstanding there are a number of claims, the claims themselves, the general amount is under a million dollars. There are some occasions where the cost or the liability could be greater than a million dollars. And it's occurring more as inflation has uh, developed over the last 20 years. And so we want to make sure that we protect all our members. If we can increase the insurance liability threshold to, like I say, two, three, or $5 million at no cost, and do it by using the excess or look using the extra profits we have, I don't think that the additional cost, if it's spread across the entire membership, it would be of such a marginal increase because you'd be protecting all 58,000 lawyers. And I believe that cost increase could be covered by the excess we have now, and we wouldn't have to add any further funds or cost any further funds to anybody who's practicing. We have to look for efficiencies. We can look for efficiencies at LawPro. There are a number of different things that you can look at. One efficiency may be looking at the directors and looking at their compensation. Increasing the maximum coverage, that would bring us more in line with what other law societies are doing. Is that fair to say? It's fair to say in other professions. And it's also, if you speak to any person that has renter's insurance or home insurance or car insurance, it's no longer satisfactory to have liability of a million dollars. We need to protect the public and we need to protect our members. I know that one of the issues going forward has to do with uh, governance. It's a hot topic. 
There's a number of people that believe that the law society is an antiquated body and needs some change. I agree with that. But let's remember that the Law Society is not a board of directors of a private corporation with a bunch of individuals sitting on it that say, okay, we'll approve what staff is doing. Staff at the Law Society is amazing. The Law Society is run in a very efficient manner. Our CEO, Diana Miles, is an excellent administrator and deserves a lot of credit. But at convocation and benchers themselves were more than just yes people. We have ideas, we have policy, there's a broad membership, and that membership protects, in my view, democracy. And it protects the fundamental principles of freedom. For us at Convocation, we have to ensure that the policies are in tune with what is going on, and to ensure that the public is protected. And so you do have different voices at convocation. And it's not always the same. And I may agree with somebody at convocation on one issue and not agree with them on a different issue. But it's important to know that you just don't slice the number of people at convocation. We have to make it more efficient. We recently voted. We're down to 53 individuals that have power to vote at convocation. And I'm in favor of reducing it more. However, In the last election, in the 2015 election, it was the first time ever that we actually got a bench that was equitable between men and women, and it was diversified. First time ever. And that came about because of previous governance change, where term limits came in. And so going forward, yeah, we have to tweak what we have. We have to look at it. But we cannot put at risk going backwards and having a homogenous group of people that are benchers. We have to ensure that going forward, there is diversity of people, and there's also, there is a battle, and and maybe battle's a strong word, between lawyers that practice inside Toronto and lawyers that practice outside Toronto. It's a different community. You gotta live it to understand it, and although I live just north of Toronto, I'm in the Central East region, It is absolutely a different community. My home court where half my practice is generally is a new market. And it's just, you have this camaraderie out of the, for example, York Region Law Association with the different functions, different education programs they put on. You become a community. And there's communities all through the province outside of Toronto that are so important. And it's just a little different. So we have to ensure that we have geographic representation So we can't have it all centralized in Toronto. If that's an idea as part of governance change, we have to ensure that uh, people from throughout the province have a voice at convocation. When we're thinking about convocation as being representative of the bar and society at large, how do we ensure that if brought into convocation, these views are taken seriously? Like, are there impediments that you've observed? There are, but they're done. One of the things that I can say I'm proud of, and people may have not seen it publicly, but I've stood up and I said, we may be newbies, but we're here and there's a tidal wave of change. And I hope one day that tidal wave gets rid of me too. <laughs> when I become antiquated, I believe I have something to offer. I believe I'm progressive and want to continue to make change. 
And I hope that the electorate out there, the membership, consider that my uh, views are of value. There are going to be a lot of new candidates who are going to be elected to convocation. And the question is, well, will I have a voice? Will I be heard? You absolutely will. In 2015, there was a change. 18 new benchers were elected out of the 40 lawyer benchers. Initially, I think there was some resistance. During orientation, you could hear suggestions like, just wait, you'll get this. Take your time. It might take a year or two. There were very strong benchers, newly elected benchers, the group of 18, who would stand up immediately and said, no, we're here for a reason. We're here for change. And I expect to see that with all the new benchers that will be elected. And they will be welcomed by the bench who are re-elected, if they're re-elected, because everybody is working in the public interest and everybody sees the need for change. They see the topics that are banging at our door. Uh, you know, Now I'm talking about technology and AI. These are things that we have to understand, we have to grasp, we have to understand whether there's need for regulation or if we just need to become cutting edge so that our services as legal service providers are seen by the public as bespoke so that we're there to be able to help with the needs of people and we can customize it. So we cannot be replaced by some technology. We cannot be replaced by artificial intelligence. Building on that technology, how do you hope to see the Law Society engage with these new issues? The Law Society is studying the issues now. We have to understand what the landscape is. We have to be up to date and with eyes wide open to see what the technology is going to be available to us now, in a year from now, five years from now, and 10 years from now. Once you have that understanding, then you can create a strategy as to how we can ensure that our members are ready for it, they engage and are able to be inspired by the new technology. And so within this term, we're gonna be able to come out with whatever regulation or whatever supports are necessary to ensure that we're cutting edge as a profession. As a candidate from outside Toronto, what's your view on law libraries and the extent to which they should be funded by the Law Society? I believe in the communities, the legal communities outside of Toronto are true communities. And historically, they've been held together by the local law libraries and the local law associations. And as technology has grown and books have become redundant and have been replaced electronically, the view of some people is, well, let's just get rid of the budgets for library co. So the new LEARN group is trying to create a proper balance with the understanding of the importance of the small communities and the legal communities outside Toronto so that they can continue to thrive. One interesting thing that I think is many people that practice outside of Toronto are general practitioners and they are competent and they take on a family case and they'll take on a criminal case and they'll take on you know uh, very involved civil litigation or large corporate matters and so the resources and the supports they have from the local law associations are important and have to continue i'm absolutely in favor of continuing to fund them i know some people don't think it's fair originally came in as Every lawyer uh, would have to pay as part of their fees a certain amount towards Library Co. 
It's now built within the fee. It's not the same amount per member. It's been reduced significantly. And I will ensure as part of my platform that sufficient funding is permitted to bring the library codes and the law associations into the next generation of the future. You've referred to the shakeup that occurred in the 2015 election and a whole lot of new faces. And this year, we're looking at, at least in the region of Toronto, 17 incumbents. Yes. Do you see social media playing a role in changing the expected outcome? Out of the 20 benchers who are going to be elected in Toronto, there are a significant amount of people that are running for re-election. I don't know what the exact number it is, but it's greater than 10 probably greater than 15. So is there room for new people? Of course there's room for new people. There's no guarantee that any one individual running for re-election is actually going to be re-elected. I don't know if I'll get re-elected. I know that I've taken progressive stands and some people don't like that. It depends on who shows up to vote. And social media will play an important role. I've had the privilege to sit on stage at Calls to the Bar over the last four years. And the dynamic new lawyers that are tech savvy, are into social media, that are now part of our profession, they have extreme amount of power. They're engaged and they can make a tremendous change. And so I believe that social media will reach that group of young lawyers. One of the discussions of topic of governance change is We're missing that view. And in fact, I was of that view because I ran before I was elected. I ran back in 2011. And that was one of the things that inspired me was I felt that it was old establishment running the law society. And I wanted a frontline criminal lawyer or frontline litigator that understands that a monthly income is not guaranteed or you'll show up at court and you'll help someone out for free because it's the right thing to do. And I'm part of a community of people that do it, and I wanted to bring that experience and understanding of young lawyers who are having a hard time making it, but love what they do and love this profession. I wanted to bring that voice. I hope that the young lawyers use their vote, the new calls use their vote, and they can help cause tremendous change or help a movement towards tremendous change. Can you tell me a little bit about the Garage series? Sure. In 2009, myself, uh, Laurieann Thomas, Holly Chapman, and as he was then known, Enzo Rondinelli, decided to put on a education series for criminal lawyers, for young criminal lawyers. And we wanted to ensure that whether you were on the defense side or prosecution side or were duty counsel, uh, we wanted to provide uh, continuing uh, legal education to help young lawyers enter the practice of criminal law. In doing so, we were able to put together a series of programs that started off with discussing the life of a criminal file. And we went from the arrest right to uh, the trial. And in putting the program together, we found that there were so many members in our community, senior members, that wanted to share their experience. And so we were able to put together wonderful programs in the first year that involved lawyers, judges, crown attorneys uh, from all over the province. And they committed their time for free 
And so we said that we could commit our time for free and be able to put these programs together and provide them for free. And this was before there was a requirement uh, to have uh, continuing legal education hours. And we started in a garage, actually. Uh, my office is in Vaughan, and there was an empty garage next door, and we asked the landlord if we could borrow the garage, and we parked a truck, a pickup truck, and we put a speaker on top of a pickup truck, and we had a ladder, and there were about 35, 40 people who showed up to the first garage series. By the end of the summer, on our fourth sessions in the series, we had 150 people. And then we moved to a different venue, and in the second year, we started to get 300 people and 400 people. And the speakers grew. And you can imagine we had the titans of criminal law, whether they were judges or, or crown attorneys or defense counsel, come and speak at the series. And then with social media, we were able to expand it and now webcast it. And so for the past 10 years, we've been trying to provide important, relevant programs cutting edge to issues in criminal law, issues in relation to ethics, and deliver it to an audience for free. And we've had about 5,000 participants so far, if not more. But more important, what was not seen by myself or anyone when we started this was that there was value when we brought people together in an informal setting that the community could speak to each other in a social setting about legal issues. And from that, something exponential happened. We started to be able to match people up at different years of call for mentorship. And that continues today. Our office, we will help mentor people, we'll put people in touch with other lawyers. And during these series, uh, connections have been made between Crowns and Defense and Defense and Duty Council. And, and just defense and other defense counsel that have helped them with ethical issues and helped them with the practice of law. I did not know that the name came from literally starting off in a garage. That is a very good piece of trivia. I like that. So if someone is wanting to learn more about your campaign, how do they find you? Should your listeners want some more information about myself or about my campaign, I'd ask if they could look at our law firm's website. I practice criminal law with Lisa Jorgensen. Our firm is called Cooper Jorgensen, and we're on the web at cj-law.ca. Or our website for this campaign, my website for this campaign is votecooper.ca. And if I could put in a plug to all your listeners that notwithstanding the bench election, Lisa Jorgensen and myself have the Garage Series for Young Lawyers. It's free. We have usually 180 to 200 people in person and up to 400 people on the webcast. If I could reach new young lawyers who are interested, we're applying for hours so that you can watch, participate, and then use them at the end of the year as part of uh, your needs or your requirements that need to be satisfied for professionalism hours. If we can do that for you at a free cost with qualitative education program, we want you to listen to that too. We want you to get involved. Is there anything else that you would want to convey to someone who may be listening to this podcast? Sure. I'm going to use this podcast to tell people that I am supporting you. And I hope to be able to mentor you. I know we've discussed the campaign and 
A lot of ideas that you have, I find, are fantastic. I find that they're progressive, and there's a need for your voice at Convocation. And I would like to share with all the people that have been generous to me and supported me in the past that they should also consider to support you, your ideas, your understanding of the issues, and your desire to help the community, the legal community, all the lawyers, everybody in this profession, that your voice at Convocation would be extremely valued. I have materials that are going out, and I'm going to ask people to consider when they think of the need for change as part of the governance, that we should have the voice of lawyers who have been at the bar less than 10 years, that they should specifically do something now. We don't have to wait for that governance change. They should vote for you. And if anyone's listening that's kind enough to vote for me or voted for me in the past and understand the hard work that we put in and, and the commitment that I feel people understand that I've put in, then I would ask them to kindly think about if they're going to vote for me, that they also vote for you at the same time. That would bring a wonderful voice to convocation. Thank you so much for saying that. I'm truly flattered and grateful. You're grateful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Caught me off guard. Who should be grateful are lawyers like me who have worked hard and see that the profession itself has such a bright future, better than whatever we could do or what we could ever imagine to do. And so it's people like you that I'm grateful for. Thank you. Thank you for participating. The Bencher election 2019 for the Law Society of Ontario takes place from April 15th to 30th. If you're out of Ontario, why not look at what's happening in your region? If you know someone who's practicing, see what they're up to. Encourage them to vote. Check me out on Twitter at Karima Rules.